You're listening to The Good GP, the podcast for busy GPs. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Good GP. I'm Christina Delange and I'm really excited to be bringing you an episode today on diagnosis and assessment of dementia in general practice. And the reason I'm excited is because I'm actually joined by fellow podcasters, the team from Dementia in Practice podcast, which is produced by Dementia Training Australia, Dr. Marita Long, Dr. Stephanie Daly and Dr. Hilton Coppy. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's such a pleasure to have you all on board. Thanks for having us. So first of all, I wanted to give you the opportunity to chat about your podcast because it is a fantastic podcast for GPs out there. I've listened to quite a few episodes now and it's such a well-executed, really well-produced discussion that you guys have on that podcast and in that forum. So I wanted to give you the opportunity to just mention that briefly to our listeners so they can get on board and have a listen for themselves as well. Yeah, thanks, Christina. And thanks for making us welcome. We've at Dementia Training Australia part of the GP education team and like many education teams we were used to delivering education face to face and when COVID came along we needed to change the way we were doing things and one of the thoughts we had was to do a podcast. So our goal with the Dementia in Practice podcast was to take the information that we present at our workshops and to package it up in a way that was quite conversational and and really we wanted to reach people's heads and their hearts around the topic of dementia. So we brought in some experts in various fields around dementia, but we've also spoken to people living with dementia and carers of people living with dementia so that it's a much more conversation, interpersonal approach to thinking about education with regard to dementia. We've been very lucky to have Kim Lester as our producer who works amongst other things with the ABC show Conversation. So she's a great producer and has worked with us rank podcaster amateurs to turn it out into something that, as you said, Christina, has been quite well received. And thanks for that good feedback. I know in podcaster world, it's important to know where you can get your podcasts and you can get Dementia in Practice wherever you get your podcasts. So through Apple or Google, also on Dementia Training Australia's website, there's a specific page for GP resources. And we might give you the link, Christina, to that. The podcast is available there as well. Great. We'll definitely put that up, Hilton. And as I said, I can't promote this podcast enough. It's such an important topic. It's something that I believe GPs play a really integral role in, in terms of both the initial assessment, but also um, a big part in the management as well. So it's really important area for GPs to feel confident and to upskill in. So let's get down to some of the content for today's episode. Marita, I'm going to direct this first question to you. And I really want to think initially about who we should be considering when we're thinking about dementia, you know, which is the patients that we should be directing kind of assessment to dementia for. Yeah, that's a really good question, Christina. And I guess the important thing to start with, I guess, is just a little brief overview of what dementia is, because we know that there's been a a lot of stigma, a lot of barriers, and there's been a bit of a lack of understanding out there as to exactly what dementia is. And I think it's important to say that it's a collection of symptoms. It's not a disease in and of itself. So it's caused by a multitude of diseases. There's probably over 100, but the most common ones that we see in general practice are Alzheimer's disease, vascular disease 
disease, Lewy body disease and frontotemporal disease, things like Huntington's disease, multiple sclerosis, any other neurocognitive diseases also may present as a, a dementia as well. But they're the main ones that we're going to be thinking about when we talk about dementia today. So who are the people we're thinking of? Well, the vast majority of people with dementia are over the age of 65, but that doesn't mean that there's not younger people who have that. And in fact, the younger population really struggle to get a diagnosis because people just don't think it happens in that younger age group. So mainly we're thinking over 65s, but not forgetting it can affect anyone. But I guess when are we thinking about it? Well, we know that 40% of the cases worldwide of dementia, there's probably a significant number of modifiable risk factors. So any of our patients who have those risk factors, and they're things like midlife hypertension, midlife obesity, drinking more alcohol than you should, smoking, all those common things we've got our eyes and ears out for in general practice, but other things like hearing impairment, physical inactivity, depression, diabetes, all the common suspects that we're dealing with in general practice anyway. So when we're thinking about it, we should think about those patients who have any of those conditions and look to do the very best we can to to modify those risk factors for them. And then my thinking usually is if someone raises it with me. So if I have a patient who comes in and says, oh gosh, I'm just really struggling with my memory because that's the thing we all think about with dementia. Well, I would never say, oh, you're too young or no, you, you know, you've just got a lot of stress. I would often ask a little bit more about what they're exactly struggling with. So if someone identifies a concern themselves, more commonly in my practice, I find that it might be a family member who's coming in saying they're worried about their partner or they're worried about their mother or their aunt or things are happening that they just can't make sense of. So that's the other way that we might be alerted to a possible case to delve into further. And the other thing I think that is really important in general practice is thinking about, you know, who might notice things and having our reception staff and our practice nurses really skilled up because they're often the people who are noticing someone perhaps struggling with their purse or struggling with their information or not turning up for appointments, you know, missing a few appointments, or they just can't make sense of what's going on with, you know, Mrs. Smith today. But they might not know that that's really important to let us know as the doctor. So I guess it's a thinking about who it might be, but also um, which patients it might be, but who might be equally well-placed to pick up on these things. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that highlights the importance of continuity in that GP-patient relationship, doesn't it, as well? Because I think you're just so much more likely to pick up some of the nuances and some of those kind of more subtle changes when you've known someone for a long time and you realize oh, that just doesn't quite add up for that person in front of me. So yeah, really important to trust our own intuition sometimes with that and to be really mindful of, you know, other people's opinions that know the patient really well. Like, so I can't agree with you more there when you mentioned about family members, you know, coming in and, or maybe kind of wanting to give you a quick call and chew your ear, which can be frustrating sometimes when we're doing that in kind of non-paid time that's a topic for another day but that kind of collateral information can just be really informative thanks marita so steph i'm going to move on to you if there is a suspicion around dementia what kind of screening tools are available to us as gps to utilize in our consulting rooms well i think the first thing i'd say that 
is that with any diagnosis of dementia or an assessment, really, it's history, history, history. So it's all about the questions. And as Marita was saying, it's getting a careful history from the person in front of you. And as you were saying, their collateral historian as well can be really vital. And so I think nearly all of our diagnoses can be made by doing a history alone. But if you want some further information to kind of back up what your thoughts are and perhaps an objective assessment, then we do have a range of tools that are called screening tools, which is a bit of a misnomer really, because they don't really meet the formal criteria for screening, but they can be helpful in identifying some of those particular changes in cognition that you might not get from your history taking. The one that everybody is most familiar with is the mini mental state examination, which is embedded in most practice software, and that's why we use it the most. It's actually probably the most crude one of the screening tools that we have available, and it doesn't often pick up people with dementia. So people with dementia can have a score of 29 out of 30. People without dementia could have a score of 25 out of 30. So it's not altogether that useful, but if that's the only one that you know how to use, then it can be used. But we at Dementia Training Australia also talk about a range of other ones that can be really helpful, particularly for different groups of the population. So, for example, there's the RUDAS, which is the Roland scale, which can be used and is adapted for people of non-English speaking background. So you can use it with an interpreter. I actually find that this is good for people of English speaking background as well, because it's very conversational. It's quite easy to use and it does it does look at a lots of areas of cognition that the mini mental state doesn't. So it does do the recall, but it also has some features of trying to pick up people who might have frontal disorders as well. And also about safety and executive functioning, which I don't think the mini mental really does very well. So I'd encourage everybody to just have a look at the RUDAS. And then for Indigenous populations, there's also the Kika, which is the Kimberley assessment tool. And that one has been developed specifically for both Torres Strait Islander and Aboriginal peoples. And they have different ones for the different populations. So it's important that you know who you're testing with what, but they have been evidence-based. And so it's important to use those ones when you need to. And finally, there are other ones that if you have time to use, you might want to, but not every practitioner is going to so I personally use something called the Adam Brooks scale but I spend a long time with people and that does take a long time but it's so interesting to use one of those tools because it goes into so much depth and you can really pick up on things that perhaps you weren't aware of so it looks for word finding difficulties which the other tests don't look for. And we always say that even if you don't have very long, you can do something simple like the GP cog because that test, that's just, it takes minutes really. It has collateral history in it. It has the clock drawing test, which is really interesting. And it also has the three item recall. So if you have no time at all, but you just want to know whether or not cognition might be a problem, then you can do that one. But as I said, it's more about trying to identify those patients as they come through to see you. And and one of the things I find interesting is that people will often come, we're very problem focused in general practice. So people will come for, you know, their prescription and then you have a little chat about their prescription. But 
it can be quite superficial sometimes. And because you have those regular conversations, you don't always delve that deeply into the person's social circumstances, how they're managing financially and other things, because it doesn't always come up. So that's where perhaps doing your over 75s check can be really helpful. And in your chronic disease management plans of people who have diabetes or other risk factors, perhaps adding in some cognitive screening and a conversation about brain health to destigmatize that as an issue may be more relevant than just doing screening on everybody in terms of the cognitive testing. Yeah, so I'm going to segue slightly there because you've mentioned a few of those screening tools, but you've also mentioned that there are some limitations in them and that actually a theme that's come out from both you and Marita is history, 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 and that's so important. So I'm going to put the three of you on the spot and I'm going to ask you for like something that you find is a really useful question or statement or something that you can ask the patient, you know, when maybe you've got a little bit of suspicion or you just think that, you know, they do have some risk factors or maybe you have risk receive some collateral information, you're trying to kind of start that sort of process just from a history perspective. Can I get each of you to say something really practically? As part of my training, I did a, a year-long course with Bradford University, and we had to think about all the questions that we would ask in history taking. And we thought about it in terms of what are the cognitive deficits that somebody might be having. So now when I ask those questions, I think about what part of the brain might be affected. So what question am I going to ask? So I will ask people, do you have problems with word finding? So when you're having a conversation, do you get to a word and you just can't think of the word that you need to say? Or if I'm thinking about their executive functioning, then I say, have you planned to do anything recently? So have you planned a holiday? Have you had to do anything that requires you to do a number of steps? And have you found that as easy as you could do before? For example, cooking a meal, do you have to refer back to the recipe or can you still put together a meal as you could do before? And how has that changed between now and six months later? But I think you have to ask that kind of thinking about the detailing in the question. And even if it was just thinking about memory orientation and executive functioning, that three questions that ask things about that. Marita, what would you say? Going on from what Steph was saying too about the cooking, it's a really interesting one because often you might have a family member there and you might say, oh, you know, how's the cooking going? And and the patient will be, oh, yes, yes, okay. And the relative will be, oh, oh yeah, you know, yes, she's still getting her meals. But when you really pick it apart, what that means often is they're heating up a meal. So someone's providing a meal and they're heating up a meal because sometimes the carers don't even understand that that's a functional impact. So, well, that's just a normal part of ageing, isn't it, that mum doesn't want to cook anymore. But, you know, so it's not taking things at face value and it's just digging that little bit deeper often. Yeah, and not seeing activities of daily living as just basic things. So do you get your meals? It's about asking how do you get your meals? How do you go to the bank? Do you go to the bank and do the banking yourself or does somebody else support you in that? And because it's all really insidious, sometimes it's the spouse that's taken over some of these roles. And then you ask to the husband or whoever, were you always the one doing the cooking? Oh, no, I started it six months ago. And then it all comes out. So it's it's about comparison as well. And in a couple relationship, it can be about breaking down whose roles were whose over what time frame. Yeah, I agree, you know, having to sort of delve that little bit further, because sometimes if you just ask it at a surface level, yes, that's fine. But it's not until you ask the next step of, well, how would you actually do this then if you needed to that? you find that things kind of unravel. Sorry, I was just going to say about the RUDAS, which is really interesting. One of the questions on the RUDAS is about 
crossing the road. So you ask somebody, you need to cross the road, but there's no crossing in sight. How would you do that? And you get some really interesting answers from people who are cognitively impaired. So, you know, they say things like, well, I would just run across without looking or I would get a taxi to the next crossing and then cross the road. That's just a simple question that identifies a big deficit in somebody's understanding of how they would do something. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Hilton, I'm going to let you off the hook for a second there. And I'm going to, because I'm going to direct the next question to you. That's if you are at a point where you're kind of thinking that someone may have dementia, then can you talk me through a framework that GPs could use in terms of the diagnosis? Because I think this is an area that GPs, not all GPs, obviously, but a lot of GPs can lack confidence. And it can be seen as a non-GP specialist kind of thing to be doing the diagnosis part. So for the GP, what can they be doing? Yeah, it's a really good question, Christina. And I think if I just reflect back onto how I was before I started working with Dementia Training Australia, I would have equated dementia with being a memory problem. And certainly part of cognitive decline is to do with memory, but it's way more than just memory because it's a progressive global decline in cognitive functioning. And so with Developed with the help of Jane Tolman, who's a geriatrician from Hobart, a couple of frameworks that are like a user-friendly distilled version of the DSM-5. I don't know about you, Christina, but I tend not to have the DSM-5 on my desk. And even if I did, I probably wouldn't refer to it because it's not very helpful. So we've got these frameworks that make the more complex DSM-5 concepts more accessible in general practice. And one of the frameworks is the domains of dementia, the five domains of dementia, and the other are the four inclusion criteria and the three exclusion criteria. So for the domains of dementia, we think about dementia as a memory or cognitive decline, memory problems. That's the first domain. The second domain that needs to be present really for a diagnosis of dementia is there needs to be some parallel decline in functioning. And, and Steph and Marita have spoken about that a little bit. And that's where history is really important, asking about a change in functioning. And I know you did ask me for my little tip. My tip would have been what I call the head turning sign, which is if you ask a patient a question and they turn their head towards their spouse or child and look for guidance in how to answer that question. That's a bit of a clue. We've probably all seen it, but might not have been aware that that's what we're doing. It's a sign of both cognitive decline and actually functional decline because they're no longer able to do that task of asking a question. A little light bulb just went off in my head as you said that, you know, I've never formally thought of that turning the head assessment, but you know, as you said, that, I went, oh yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah. And it's actually called that. It's an actual thing. The head turning sign. So this is what this is why I love doing this work because we present it in such a way that people have light bulb moments. And you know, I usually say when that happens in a workshop, did you just learn that, Christina? Yes. Well, you can leave. You know, you've already learned one new thing, so that's good. But I know you'll hang around for the rest of the interview. So we've got cognitive decline, we've got functional decline, the third domain, psychiatric symptoms, and these can occur at any stage throughout a dementia. They may be part of the dementia, like dementia can cause hallucinations and delusions, but they may also coexist with the dementia, like depression or anxiety can be both risk factors and coexisting factors 
with the dementia. So when we're assessing someone for a dementia, we look for these psychiatric changes. The fourth domain are changes in behaviour. And these are behaviours that are kind of out of character for the person with dementia. They are perhaps more likely to occur in the second half of a dementia. And if you think about it, if someone no longer has a cognitive ability to understand why someone's coming into their home to help with the cooking, cleaning, bathing, that sort of thing, and those things are going on, then they may respond with some anger or aggression. So behavioral changes can be part of dementia. And the fifth domain is what we call physical decline. That is most prominent in the later stages of a dementia, and it's the physical decline, difficulties with mobility, with swallowing, with moving that makes dementia a life-limiting illness. So just to summarise, the five domains that is one of the frameworks that we use for a diagnosis of dementia is cognitive decline, functional decline, psychiatric changes, changes in behaviour and physical decline. And it's the physical decline that makes dementia a life-limiting illness. So we've got the domains framework and sitting in parallel with that is what we call the inclusion and exclusion criteria. So we've got four inclusion criteria and what we offer in our teaching is that it's not possible to make a new diagnosis of dementia without these four inclusion criteria being present. First one is a gradual onset of poor memory. And the key thing there is that it's a gradual onset. So as Steph and Marita alluded to earlier, that's where history is really important to find out what's changed for the person now compared to how they were six months or 12 months ago or even longer. If the change has occurred over days or weeks, it's less likely to be a dementia and more likely to be a delirium. And we'll get to that when we come to the exclusion criteria. So a gradual onset of poor memory, second inclusion criteria that's getting worse. So it's like I always forget where my keys are and I've never been very good with people's names, but I, hopefully I don't have dementia because it's not getting worse. So a gradual onset of poor memory that's getting worse. The third inclusion criteria is there needs to be a parallel failure of function in some way. So that can be the activities of daily living or executive functioning that Steph was talking about. But that's really what separates dementia from mild cognitive impairment where there may be some memory changes, but there's not always the functional decline. So we've got the gradual onset of poor memory that's getting worse and there's a parallel decline in functioning. And then the fourth inclusion criteria is some evidence of cortical dysfunction. And by cortical dysfunction, we mean a dysphagia, which is difficulty with speech. Sometimes that will be word finding. Sometimes people will talk a lot, but they won't actually say very much. So our local geriatrician calls that empty speech. I might ask someone a question, oh, what have you been doing? And they'll say, oh, you know, I've been busy. And I say, well, what have you been doing? And they go, oh, you know, this and that. I've been, you know, just keeping active all the time. And then you see the head turning sign as they turn to their partner and say, we've been busy, haven't we? So that's like, a dysphagia. Agnosia 
is another cortical dysfunction, difficulty with naming things. And then the dyspraxias, uh, difficulty with doing some tasks, like, for example, in the mini mental test, the folding the piece of paper in half and putting it on the ground is an example of a dyspraxia. And in our workshops, we talk in a little bit more detail about how you might assess for those things. So there's the cortical dysfunction, that's the fourth inclusion criteria. And then we've got the three exclusion criteria. And you can't make a new diagnosis of dementia in the presence of a delirium. So if someone's got a delirium, assess and treat the delirium as well as possible. Once the person's recovered, make a note in their file to recall them for doing a reassessment for the inclusion criteria after about six months' time, because it takes a while for someone's cognitive functioning to return after a delirium. The second exclusion criteria is any other organic cause. And these are where we do the investigations. So like B12, iron deficiency, blood sugar, lipids in a way is kind of a partly reversible cause. We do a CT brain without contrast to look for a brain tumour or a space occupying lesion. So if there is an organic cause found, treat that as best as possible, correct their hypothyroidism, correct their B12 deficiency, and then reassess for the four inclusion criteria. And the third exclusion criteria is a psychiatric illness. So as I mentioned at the start, psychiatric illness can be part of a dementia, but if they're present, if a depression is present or an anxiety is present, treat as best as possible. And then guess what? Reassess looking for the four inclusion criteria. So they're the four inclusion criteria and three exclusion criteria. We can put some links to some of our information where that's in a readily digestible or rememberable form. But you'll notice, Christina, that on the inclusion criteria, there was no mention of cognitive screening tests. Yeah, so it does highlight again that importance of the history and the examination and going back to first principles as a GP, as opposed to relying on one of those screening kind of tools as a diagnostic tool. And we should probably just highlight there that that's when we're talking about Alzheimer's dementia. So that's sort of a specific framework for Alzheimer's. If we wanted to put in vascular dementia, we'd add in a sign for some kind of vascular disease so like brisk reflexes on examination or there might be evidence on CT of vascular disease in the brain and, and that would, would help us figure out if it could be a vascular dementia or commonly we see mixed pattern there. And, you know, I think really it's just helpful to have that framework and I think it just, like you say, it kind of just breaks it down into digestible chunks without it feeling like this big kind of overwhelming, like, oh, dementia, I'm not sure that I can make that call or that I can work that up appropriately. But I think when you hear it kind of broken down like that, it gives us a nice little framework to be able to follow and work through and start that journey with our patients, which is really important. The GP is always going to be the first point of contact in that respect. And the nice thing is that even I can remember five domains, four inclusion criteria and three exclusion criteria. It's not like that complicated. I can actually remember it, but I've got to say, Christina, I do have it on a cheat sheet that I keep on my desk uh, because it's taken a little while for it to get embedded in my long-term memory. And um, and I uh, have it put down graphically um, with time as well so that I can show to patients and their family what's the likely 
trajectory of a dementia over time. And it's, it's a very useful prompt for education, but it's also a great prompt for me to remember to think about, oh yeah, I need to think about behavioural change or, or physical decline or the psychiatric changes. Absolutely. One of the things I think is really helpful about the domains thing is it also reminds you that people present in lots of different ways. So I've had lots of people who their first presentation has actually been a psychiatric symptom in terms of hallucinations and delusions and they didn't have another mental illness that would could explain that but did have a neurocognitive disorder in the end but they didn't have any signs of memory problems for quite some time so your bias to thinking oh this is you know delusional disorder is there but when you think about dementia and then realize that there's all these other ways it can present it makes you think about it you know, as a possibility. The same with people presenting with anxiety or depression, there may be an underlying cognitive disorder there and you need to explore that. You can't just assume that it's the first thing that comes into your mind. So that's why I think they're helpful. Yeah, and we've kind of then done a full 360 there and ended up back where we started at kind of the diversity of presentations and when to suspect this in our general practice. And I guess the answer is kind of always have it, you know, in the back of your head and and thinking about it for all of your patients. That is probably all that we have time for today. Thank you so much for joining me. I will definitely take you up on the offer to include some resources in the notes for this podcast. So I'd encourage our listeners to go there. And I really encourage our listeners to jump on and have a listen to the Dementia in Practice podcast. Today was just a teaser. You know, you guys go into so much more detail and so much more depth and it's a really great resource for GPs out there. So thanks for everything you're doing and thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Christina. Thank you. Thank you.